Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Hey there, welcome back. It seems like every day we are hearing about toxic leadership, spiritual abuse in the church, and it is, for me, at least personally, it's enough just to make me despair for the life of the church. It goes without saying that there's a lot of emotionally unhealthy churches and church members and pastors out there. So today we're talking all about that. We're bringing in a pastor who wants to turn that around in his church. As always, I'm Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Embodied Faith Podcast brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which seeks to grow faith for everyday people. Today, I'm really excited to bring on a new friend. Uh, I joined the Vineyard uh, Church Movement uh, a couple years ago, and I just met this guy, Ted Kim. He is the senior pastor of the Evanston Vineyard just outside of Chicago. He's been pastoring in churches for over 20 years. He's also passionate about the Vineyard, playing a significant role in the renewal of the city of Chicago. Ted, oh, wait, there's the button. Ted, welcome to (laughs) the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. So glad to have you. So glad. So there's a lot of uh, probably overlaps and things that we could talk about um, just in general. But I want to hear you pastorally. How did you get into this uh, concern or how did you become passionate? I hope you're passionate about uh, emotionally healthy churches. Where did that start for you? Well, actually, okay, let me back it up. Okay, I want to ask the personal question. But first of all, what does it mean for you? to have an emotionally healthy church? What does that even mean? Just the bare bones definition. Well, I think that uh, for me, emotional health goes back to formation. Uh, so what does it look like to be, uh, or what does it look like to image God in the world? Um, and what does it look like to become like Jesus, uh, which I, I believe is the telos or the goal of spiritual formation. Um, and what occurs to me is that if you like are to read the scriptures, and, and read them carefully for the way that Jesus holds space with other people, um, you'll find what we would call today uh, emotional health, the ability to, um, to, I guess, manage, control, or be, um, be mastered, or be, have some mastery over kind of the things that are happening internally, including our anxiety, um, which I'm sure uh, Jesus may have felt at some points. Um, um, and also the ability in relationships um, to treat people with kindness and with respect and with dignity, as I believe Jesus did on many, many occasions. Um, and so, I mean, for us, I mean, our hope to be an emotionally healthy church actually like derives from our hope to help people become like Jesus. So okay. that's where that comes from. Amen. Uh, but not just think like Jesus, but to like live and interact. And the clinical Amen. kind of way of talking about that is something like emotional regulation, like having a, a productive 
regulation or co-regulation with other people so that our emotions connect us with people rather than disrupt us in our relationships. That's right. And in fact, um, so I've been interested in emotional intelligence or EQ for like for years. Mm. Um, and I went to a conference, um, realized that EQ had actually like iterated. Uh, so there's like a EQ, there's an EQ 1.0, which talked a lot about self-awareness and self-regulation. So um, the things that are happening inside of you, how, how well do you do regulating them? Uh, um, and then how aware are you of what's actually happening inside? And what I noticed with the EQ 2.0 is that the EQ 2.0 brought this thing that you're talking about, which is that co, like co-awareness kind of thing, the social competence piece of it. Like how do we relate to one another? So EQ 2.0 um, has some rubrics by which you're evaluated mm. uh, as you take some like take some tests. And some of them are some of them are still the same, but then there's some new ones. How do we how do we relate to people? What's our social competence like? Um, and what I've noticed is I've noticed people saying, I feel really emotionally healthy because I'm very self-aware. And then I notice in their interactions with others, they do devastatingly harmful things. <laughs> and so then I'm like, well, wait, what's the, what's the connection between those two things? Actually, when I took the assessment for me um, back, I don't, I don't remember when this was maybe like 10 years ago or something like that. Uh, when EQ 2.0 came out, I heard a conference speaker talk about it. So I went immediately and took the test. I scored well on the self-regulation and the self-awareness, but I scored really poorly on the social confidence, <laughs> how to relate to people. Um, in fact, uh, I remember reading the, I, mean, I know this is kind of funny, but I remember reading the the assessment afterward and it said, you must seek help. Because it was, <laughs> it was like, you, you scored in the 60s or something like that. And so there was um, an elder in the church at the time who was a therapist, who is a therapist, um, and I just said, Hey, can I have, can I take you out to lunch? And would you e mentor me in this particular area of EQ? Um, and this, I was doing worship pastoring at the church. And of course we, we met, it was really, really helpful. Uh, but I don't think it, I don't think, I don't think it really became like mission critical until I came to the Evanston Vineyard a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, and then I was watching us her navigate a lot of, um, fraught moral ethical issues, uh, including the way that uh, authority or power is used. Um, like what's our ethic as it relates to other people, like um, in their sexuality. And like, those are lots of things that um, I, we, we like, I would observe um, how we would hold space in those situations and realize um we would often get super triggered. We'd often say like really like unkind things to one another. Mm. Uh, we're often like super binary. We often like, we're not able to stay connected. We could differentiate or we'd be totally over accommodating mm. and just kind of like be like limp noodles and not actually say what we were really feeling. And so there's resistance that was overt and resistance that was internal. Jeff and all of that came to a head. Uh, we were doing a series on, uh, uh, we we're doing a sexual ethics series and all that came to a head when we, we would have these like meetings after. Uh, so when we, we'd preach a message on something and then we'd say, Hey, we're going to do like a 45 minute discussion for anybody that would like to come after the church service. And so they'd come in and the level of anxiety in the room uh, when we would start talking about these like really 
really, really like massively important issues about who we are and how we relate to one another. Mm. We just couldn't do it in a way that I felt like was emblematic of the kindness of Jesus. And so at that point, I said, that's the first thing that I do. Um, if I get voted in as a senior pastor, like um, I came here to transition the church, and but there's like a nine month lead up. I just knew that if I came in as a senior pastor, the first thing that we were going to do is work on this. Mm. Uh, amen. So just to, to back up, I had not heard of that one, 1.0, 2.0 on emotional IQ, but that yeah. does fit with like the larger trends in psychology and neuroscience, which had started off as what is often called like a one person perspective where it's just um, psychology, psychotherapy uh, is really about you and your self-awareness and how are you were doing. And then the neuroscience is really, you know, just scanning your brain and, and whatnot. Uh, but they've really moved to what the, is sometimes called like a two-person kind of interactive uh, yeah. viewpoint in psychology, which is, well, the me that I call myself is really a product of the we that I'm involved in. So you always have to be um, looking at all the interactive relationships. And so uh, emotional regulation uh, is really a multi-person experience. Um, 100%. <laughs> but... But it can also be uh, disruptive that way because if I only if I can't self-regulate and I only co-regulate, then that's what we call dependency, right? You're a you're right. a codependent person because you always need someone else giving you emotional inputs to help you regulate. But then you also have uh, someone who only self-regulates and doesn't co-regulate, and that means they're withdrawn and they believe that the world can't help them in any way, and so they only. But. Uh, if you don't co-regulate and self-regulate, you actually end up with all sorts of health problems and stress problems and all this type of stuff. So it seems like personally uh, and um, and socially in your church that there was, you know, maybe not enough co-regulating where you're sharing and interacting with your emotions, too much self-regulation, then the relationships are still getting frayed and kind of upset. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Or It does make sense. In fact, I, I just wonder if the EQ 2.0 is like, it's, it, it was, it had to be, I mean, it had to be adjusted because of the of the of what you're talking about, like uh, the advances in kind of like that that field. You know, mm -hmm. like I come to it through sort of like family systems thinking. You know, the Murray Bowen, oh, yeah. Ed Friedman. Uh, what does it look like to be a healthy person? You you need like this uh, balance of of what you're talking about, like self regulation or like or differentiation is, I guess, the word that they would use but also con connection. So if you're mm -hmm. differentiated and not connected, that's actually not healthy. Um, if you're connected, but not differentiated, that's actually not healthy either. Right. Uh, and isn't it like true? I mean, like, I'm sure you found this to be true, Jeff. Uh, most of what it looks like to pastor people is to help them figure out how to manage these tensions, not solve them, you know, mm -hmm. um, how to, how to help people become like, you know, exquisitely aware uh, that it's not healthy to be super connected and not differentiated, but the and the other way around to help them kind of manage those tensions. I feel like we're always doing that here in the vineyard. Like theologically, we're charismatic. Um, we're also Bible believing, empowered. You know, and so we believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is normative, um, but we also want to ground that. Um, sort of in in the proclamation and preaching of the word because we understand that the signs of the kingdom are are not just deliverances and healings but also proclamation too right and so right right constantly balancing those tensions 
All right. Well, let me throw out something kind of super high level. And then I want to get back to like the church level. So, cause you brought up the vineyard movement, you know, and we're trying to, and I'm new to, you know, to this movement, but we're trying to integrate these different streams. And oftentimes uh, outsiders would be like, well, that charismatic Pentecostal movement is so emotional. It's so, you know, that could be one way to say, it. you know, it's all this like craziness. It's so emotive. Uh, and seeking the, the feelings and whatnot in worship and, you know, slain in the spirit, however you go to. And then you kind of get the Bible Baptist fundamentalist, you know, maybe reformed <laughs> traditions, which is, um, you know, like the, the history is, is that Jonathan Edwards uh, read his preaching manuscript several hundred years ago with no affect. He was basically yeah. trying to to remove the the person from his sermon. So it would just be the ideas and the pure word of God. And so you have like the other stream, which is all all cognitive. And then you have the Pentecostal charismatic. Uh, but those are kind of, I think two extremes that need to be integrated. And I would think that an emotionally healthy churches actually integrate those two. So is, is that right? Like you're not saying an emotionally healthy church talks about emotions all the time. Like there is still a discipleship or an orientation or even a whatever purification, holiness. Um, yeah. like we don't just say whatever is feel, whatever you feel is real. Right. That's not no. what you no, but um, I, I, I I do think that like uh, so lots of things that we do are like in conversation with our past, right? Yes. And so uh, all theology is autobiography, as some people it, say. Right, and and also, I mean, there's there's like there's some reaction to what's what's happened in the past. Um, I just think that I don't see emotions as being negative. I don't see them as being necessarily positive either. I feel like they're they're kind of like these things that like give clues to what's actually happening for us. Um, and in fact, one of the things that I think find interesting, and, and so I guess going back to what you're saying is I totally and heartily believe um, that our faith is a confessional one. You know, like we have things that we hold to that are, um, that are like, they're like solid rocks, you know, as we were kind of like, as the winds blow and the, rains beat down as jesus says in the sermon on the mount we hold on to our confession right which is what i believe that part of what he's talking about when he talks about the rock um and so yes i i would not say uh that emotions actually are i guess the the governor by which we like make like decisive moves toward this or toward that um but i do think that emotions are important Amen. Um, and and I think that emotions are really helpful. They help us like, uh, they help us see actually what's happening inside of us. They help us actually um, attend to maybe what the Holy Spirit is doing in the room. Um, but even, I mean, Jeff, even Pentecost needs, needed, even in that moment, it needed the fulsome proclamation mm-hmm. of, of the word, right? So Peter, right. so it's not just manifestation. It also has to be meaning too, right? It has, you have to have both of those things at the same time. And, and during, even during Pentecost, um, you see that this explosion of activity actually happens. Um, and, and then if you read the, if you read, if you read that chapter really carefully, what you see is you see that actually people are quite confused and distressed by it. You know, in fact, they don't actually know what's happening. And so they're like, I mean, what, we don't understand why are they speaking? They must, we have no other explanation for this. They must just be drunk or crazy. And so Peter has to stand up and actually say, no, no, friends, this is actually what's happening. And I just think that when you empty a church of manifestation, 
And you, all you have is you have the second part of it. Um, I think people get really hungry, as my friend Adam Russell likes to say. They just get hungry um, for the more or the beyond that is our faith, right? Um, but then if you empty like manifestation of its meaning, um, then what you do is you get like the classic 1 Corinthians 14 situation, which is like, I don't, this is crazy. I don't even want to go near it. So you have to actually have both. Um, and that's what I'm arguing for again, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like every, uh, just to go all, you know, continue in the Pentecostal street. It's like, I was just thinking every, you know, speaking of tongues requires an interpretation. And so it's like every emotion requires some sort of, you know, interpretation and things like that. And, and Jeff, I, I would be interested to hear your take on this. Um, this is something that I've been thinking about recently. And I'm like, we have a young adult, I have a young adult spiritual formation group. So, okay. um, so basically that young adult spiritual formation group is I've, been, I've told them what you're going to do here um, re- will require uh, you to, um, to work. So you will, um, we will give you a practice to practice this week. And then when you come back, we will process that. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about a resistance that we felt from it. We'll like, talk about what we noticed, what we paid attention to. We'll kind of like do that in dialogue. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that I've noticed with them, is, and this happened, like I had to sit with them for like maybe six, maybe four to six months before this kind of came out. What I noticed is that the people in that room, the arbiter for whether their practice was successful or not was feeling. Mm-hmm. So they were like, well, I had a good quiet time today or had a good devotion time today because I felt the Lord was near me, you know, and one of our most like, I guess, uh, important or sort of like maybe unexpected teachings has been known. And that's actually not the arbiter. Mm -hmm. You know, what what, what have you, I'm curious to hear, like, what what are your thoughts on that? On people checking in with, feeling like feeling something or yeah no no, i mean i think feeling something is good but i think feeling something as like to the arbiter whether that actually was successful or not which actually has its own problems using that kind of language too but right have you noticed that as well um yes yes for sure uh i i struggle with that myself you know like i'm going through you know the examine or reading scripture and it's like did I feel something? Did I feel God was near? Did I receive a word? Right. You know, and, and that's, um, wondering those things I think is good because at, at the base of Christianity, we believe in an interactive personal God yes. who is constantly pursuing us and seeking to engage us on a personal interactive level, right? So that's the kind of, you know, for all the different kind of backwaters and kind of things that kind of trip you up with scripture, you just, you, you can't read it and then come away with like, well, God's pretty dis- disinterested in the fate of humanity and doesn't really in- engage with people. Like, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I forget which theologian said that, you know, if you read the Bible, you find God's a very talkative God. Like it's, you know, mm. pretty unique. And so, so on that, on that sense, like, I think those expectations, you know, that's part of our tradition is that, um, and then when I think through, so this is, a, this is the, la- the roundabout answer, right? But I think through, um, like Daniel Siegel, he came up, he's a neuroscientist, psychologist. He came up with this, you know, the sense of 
what he called feeling felt or uh, attunement is that hmm. one of the one of the most important aspects of an interpersonal relationship especially a caregiving relationship attachment you know with infants and whatnot but this is true therapeutically and then also pastorally is the you know what people people say uh i just want to be understood Mm. Um, and so they use cognitive language for that but what they really want is to feel felt they want you know they want to know that you're like feeling the feelings that they're feeling uh it's kind of like the um I was just thinking about this, this idea of when people spill their guts, like, you know, when people say, that's like, that's a saying, you know, oh, he's spilling his guts. But really, that's a process of taking these like unspoken, implicit bodily sensations. And in front of someone that you trust, you spill them. Like it's literally your embodied, you know, your guts, mm. your, your nervous system, trying to find words, groping, and you're spilling it in front of people. And then in that process, you're organizing and you're creating a somewhat coherent order or narrative out of the chaotic process, right? And so you're spilling your guts as sharing. And then the appropriate response, uh, oftentimes we say things like, I understand, but what people are really looking for is, do you feel it? Do you feel uh, what I feel? And so, interesting. so, when, so when you ask like, oh, I felt something like part of me wants to be like, well, yeah, that's natural. Like, because if I believe that this Imago day and the way God has made us and the, the need to feel felt um, is fundamental to being human, then wouldn't it make sense that sometimes, <laughs> hopefully sometimes we would feel felt, but I agree. Um, but it goes back to the kind of codependency or independency. If, the, if, if our, um, if our relational needs are so ramped up, you know, it's what's called like a hyperactive um, attachment system where we're anxious about all of our relationships. So there's a demand to feel felt in every encounter with God or with another person or with the pastor or whoever, then that's its own problem. That's right. Right. So when the demand, the demand to feel it every time um, is one thing, right? Because then you get like the divine silence and, you know, it's okay to sit with people and best friends and people have been married for a long time sit in silence with each other. And that's, that's an important way of being with. Right. And so I think our spiritual development needs to, you know, progress through, but that, that was a long way around. I found in our church that, um, spiritual growth was directly connected to relational, emotional growth. So people would kind of progress to a certain level. Spiritual practices would have impact and growth to a certain level, but then it would kind of stop and people would plateau. And then it's kind of like, you need to, then this is probably what you experienced when you had all these dialogues. You're like, actually, our explicit spirituality measures may seem very high. We have high Bible knowledge and high church participation and high service, whatever. But our relational experience is low. <laughs> and when you went through this big discernment process on, on uh, sexuality, you probably saw that gap. You're like, oh, we have a gap here that uh, we need to work on. Well, yeah, I mean, I love, I love what you're saying there. I don't think that it should be, um, I, I do think that the feeling felt, uh, as you put it, um, which I love, by the way, uh, when you think about like the quotidian nature of like having a long-term relationship with someone, um, sort of the electricity of that first feeling felt or those first months of it will probably dissipate, you mm-hmm. know, um, or it won't be the same at least. And so I think the thing that I'm trying to normalize for like our, our young adults is this is that way. You want a long-term relationship mm-hmm. with someone, 
Um, you have covenanted with this, this God who's covenanted with you and will never leave you and forsake you, by the way. Um, but, but your life will probably be more like Abraham, um, who lived for, like, I mean, lived like over a hundred years. And I know that it's in the space of 11 to 15 chapters, you see these like stupendous like meetings between mm-hmm. Abraham and God. But if you think about when those actually happened in this life, you could probably put like decades between them, right? You know, um, right. which is not the thing that I actually want to. I don't want to bury our young adult. Give like the idea that that um, this is very similar to having to having a, a long term faithful relationship with someone. I mean, you're not going to feel like you're scripture reading um, this morning or this evening or whenever you did it, or your exam and had maybe the same electricity that it did when you first started doing it, or maybe even last year or last month. And that's okay. Right. Um, right. That's, and I do think actually this is where kind of the mystics and the contemplatives, um, not to necessarily put those two in the same category, but they can be helpful because they've sort of like tried to do this and tried to chart, like, what does it actually look like for me to, have communion with God over my whole entire life. And you can see in that record um, that they would, uh, they would corroborate this. Um, right. Yeah, there are sure. periods of, of silence and there are periods of, of darkness. Um, but then again, um, here's where what you're saying, I think actually um, comes into almost laser focus. Um, the hope is that as you do, these things as you do these spiritual practices and as you lean into the work of emotional health, you'll be doing it together with other mm. people. Amen. And, um, and, the, and as you do it with those other people, um, there is a certain thing that happens, you know? Um, and I would call it actually, um, uh, the spirit of God, <laughs> Yeah, amen. but you know, and, and you would too. Um, it's interesting though. One thing that I, 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 I'm, I'm, I want to agree with and say a heartily, a hearty amen to is you're right. Actually, the spiritual practices thing, they get you. So to a certain point, and then there is like a, I don't know, a gap between that and your, your emotional health. And then, mm-hmm. and then, so it's, it's like, I, I read a book um, on, on spiritual practice by a guy named John Ortberg like years ago. And he was saying, why is it that some of our oldest people who know the Bible so well, are actually jerks. How does that actually happen? Mm. So I agree with you. In fact, I think that for us, we flipped the order of importance. So the order of importance for us is actually emotional health first. Mm-hmm. So you do that work. And then we start teaching you about practices um, because we believe that uh, as you engage with those practices, you're going to feel resistance. You're going to need to like interrogate that. Um, as you're doing spiritual practices, um, we know that you're going to be in relationship with one another. You're going to have to have the courage to actually go up and confess your sin to to, to that person. Um, and oftentimes, the emotional health is just like this, like bottleneck, yeah. you know, um, that becomes so small that not much can get through it, including yeah. our own pain. Yeah. So. Oh, that's so true. Well, so since you've started this process, you noticed this gap. Now you've you've kind of flipped these emphases. Um, have you started seeing like significant changes? Like, can you narrate some of these changes or, and, or what are the practices or activities that you're doing to promote this kind of relational emotional health? 
Well, so um, I don't know who's going to listen to the podcast, but I'd be interested <laughs> to like actually hear. I mean, not not saying that nobody will. Be, I'm sure that lots of people do, but it'd be interesting to hear from other yeah. pastors or leaders what they've experienced. For us, um, what we have chosen to do is we've chosen to say, like at the center of our church, we believe um, we will work really hard on that. And so for the, us, that means like the pastors first and then the the our, our leadership team. And then we hope that that will radiate out to our congregants. Uh, and so our pastoral team, uh, we have done this work and we've done it um, by reading some family system stuff, uh, mainly through the lens of Jim and Jim Harrington and Trisha Taylor and Robert Creech. Uh, so we read a book together on that. Um, and then uh, we've had like lots of our people going through a program that the Vineyard does uh, called Emotionally Focused, which is essentially a program to get you to, to look at how you're wired internally and to look at like, you know, sort of, sort of those emotional triggers, like so vows that you've made as a child that sort of keep you from living into a fully embodied gospel, right? Um, and so we do that. And so I would say, that what has happened for our pastoral staff is um, a couple of things. First thing is we've become less brittle mm-hmm. and less tender mm-hmm. to hard feedback, which has been like a total gift, a total boon. And the second thing that I think would um, has happened is the reason why that's happened is because I think we've become more psychologically safe. So, you know, um, I think that that's a word that Lazo Bach uses uh, for for um for corporate culture psychological safety um can you actually show up at work and say hey um supervisor or manager you're doing actually that wrong or you know what Mm -hmm. what does that actually look like how open and honest can you be in a setting like that um i don't know uh what the level of psychological safety was before um but it didn't it it didn't feel all that safe to me uh, but now it feels a lot different Um, And how I mark that is um, by watching people, uh, how they give feedback to one another, how they hear it from one another, and also the amount of laughter that happens Mm. in the room. Mm. So family systems thinking, I mean, they talk a lot about like play and laughter and, and that's like a, that's like a, that's like a sure sign that things are becoming safer. And so how much do we laugh? You know, how, how much levity is there in the room? Um, there's more of that, which I think I find really encouraging. Um, but we're just embarking on that for our leadership team as well. And so I uh, haven't seen as much there. Um, but I think it like means a lot to the congregation that anyone in the congregation, if they want to put me on blast or give me feedback, they can come to me and then and we can do that. And I will sit with them and I'll be kind to them and listen to them, even if I don't agree with them, you know? Yeah. So that changes the feel, I think. Mm, of, that's um, great. How things are. Yeah, that's so important because um, so often we, as pastors trained in a certain tradition in the West, you know, we feel like um, leadership needs to cast vision and have talking points and, you know, have the rallying cries and things like that, which can be very information driven. Yes. But so much. And then we, you know, we might even have specific goals for we want to be a hospitable and a welcoming culture. And, you know, and you could have all these goals listed, right? But if your emotional intelligence is not high enough, you won't actually get the culture you've written on your statement. 
right? Yeah. You're just going to get the culture um, of the top leaders and how they relate to each other. And then that's just going to um, implicitly trickle down. That's right. Whether it's an anxious culture, whether it's authoritarian culture, or maybe you have multiple streams depending on which who gravitates toward what leaders. And some are anxious and some are authoritarian, right? And you have all these. And so you could really only change um, the culture of a church, not through faith statements, doctrinal statements, or vision statements, really. But it's it's your your interactions. I was pastoring at a church for a long time where we were all co-pastors. There was no lead pastor. Um, and there was a sense, and we talked about communal discernment and mutual submission, uh, where we're always kind of in each other's business. And for me, I always said, if the lead pastors, multiple, can't live out the fullness of the gospel, which is, mm. you know, peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, joy. If we can't do that together, why do we even think we could call the rest of our church into that? Amen. Um, which doesn't mean that only non-hierarchical systems can do that. But but the principle is, is if the people at the top aren't doing that with an emotional, spiritual vibrancy, doctrine's not going to fix that, right? It's the lived, embodied, this is why we call it the embodied faith podcast, right? It's this embodied relationships that will trickle down. And that's why I think Jesus, you know, walked with his disciples for so many years, um, certainly teaching and training them. Um, but he was also modeling and interacting, you know, this is why, uh, for me, the way and the truth of Jesus, you know, he calls himself the way and the truth and the life, uh, is you have the, the, for lack of a better term, the emotional, affective, embodied way of Jesus, hmm. you know, who verifies and proclaims, you know, the truth, the cognitive or, you know, or whatever, however you think of that, you know, and those two things working together actually is what gives us life. But I think church traditions will fall off, you know, and if we wanted to go total extreme, you know, I think like the conservative is all truth uh, with very little embodied way. And then you kind of get yeah. the progressive liberal, which is like, oh, it's just the way it's just the way. But you know what you believe and what actually happened, that doesn't matter at all. There's no content, you know, actual. Con and I just think that that's, that's not bringing life, I think, to, to people that kind of creates these all sorts of other problems culturally and socially. But, you know, that's right. Well, and also, uh, uh, and also kind of like, you know, the, to your point, like uh, um, we uh, here at the Evanston Vineyard, I mean, like we, we, we want embodied faith for our people. So we want them to actually live out the way of Jesus, not just know about it propositionally. Um, and, and I do think that it's, um, I mean, you, you're more well-schooled in, in church history than I am, but I mean, I do think that it's maybe like an outcome of, I mean, of, of being post-Reformation um, or being in sort of in that Reformation thing that we like have such a, like a high value on rationality and have kind of propositional truth and whatnot. And, you know, like uh, it's, it's interesting because I think our ability to be, to use like Stanley Harawas, like peaceable with one another, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes is oftentimes gets threatened by an overly propositional kind of way of thinking about our faith. You know, because now we like then everything um, like falls to an ultimate like sort of natural law ethic. And so people are wrong and people are right and people are demonstrably wrong mm -hmm. when the fact of the matter is our ethic is always informed by our community and by our narrative, you know. Right. Um, and I also agree, too, with you that like, you know, maybe like on the far left, you know, uh, what's the rooting, you know, where's the source of power and and 
where is that like where does that life actually come from that's something that we need to really really hold on to so yeah hey man well i you know there's like multiple podcast episodes <laughs> we could continue to have we didn't i wrote down i didn't even get to this question of how does emotional health and then desire what we desire oh man i'd love to talk about this. that we'll to, yeah put that out there for <laughs> another, maybe we could have like a, a panel you know and have like a, a group of us on there oh yeah yeah that would be that would be so fun all right well we'll, we'll put that in there. any last thoughts or things that kind of you know emerged in the conversation that you wanted to kind of the hit on before we wrapped it up no i think I think it's really, no, no, I think we'll leave it at that. That's great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, again, this is Ted Kim. Uh, are you active on the social media places or you got a website? Yeah, I'm, on, things to I'm on, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at underscore Ted Kim underscore. Um, that's probably the best place to find me. All right. You can find him on Twitter where everyone is always calm and very emotional. <laughs> Twitter, the place to go for uh, spiritual and, emotional maturity right um <laughs> well thanks again and again this is the embodied faith podcast where we're trying to integrate neuroscience spiritual formation and faith you could find us on uh let's see where on itunes spotify uh, all the places you listen to podcasts you can also find all the episodes on youtube on my youtube channel which is jeffrey holsclaw uh, my mom only calls me jeffrey but for some reason i put that into my youtube channel so there we go jeffrey Holesclaw. You can get all these episodes if you'd rather watch them. But uh, thanks again, and let's do this uh, soon, Ted, if you're you're open to it. I'd love to. All right. Well, take it easy.